practice divination like the Philistines they, and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled, the, humble pride, the human pride and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For, the, for all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and the high hills, for every lofty tower, for every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel. The arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride hum humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols will totally disappear. People will flee to caves in the rocks and, and to holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. In that day, people will throw away to the, to the moles and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold, which they made to worship. They will flee to, the, to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty, which when he rises to shake the earth, Stop trusting in mere humans who have, but, who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? Uh, the second reading is Matthew chapter 24, verses 22 to 43. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive you, if pos to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out, or here he is, in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east is as lightning that comes from the east is visible in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with, great, with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather the elect from the four winds, 
from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as it, its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people, the people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in, in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And the final reading is Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 17. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them were given a, right, a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair and the whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For, that, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? This is the word of the Lord. Of Jerusalem. Uh, it was a documentary about archaeology. A Jewish archaeologist, uh, sorry, a Jewish archaeologist was excavating the foundations of Jerusalem. In fact, in terms of the layers he was digging down through, going back in time, the deeper he dug, he was digging up the 8th century BC. He was digging up artifacts from around the time of the prophet Isaiah, the era of the first temple, the time before the exile to Babylon in the early 6th century BC. 
And I remember him saying that he did not think that Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Bible, he didn't think that that God was even known in Jerusalem in the 8th century BC. I mean, there was evidence of a temple, but he didn't think that Yahweh was known or worshipped. Uh, the inter- a staggering conclusion, the interviewer asked him why, and his answer was this. Everywhere they turned, they uncovered idol after idol. Statues of this god, figurines of that goddess, everywhere. Now, many years ago, my PhD supervisor taught me, listen carefully when people tell you their conclusions. Human beings are very good at making observations, but the conclusions they make based on their observations aren't necessarily good. Their conclusions don't necessarily follow. And my research involved working with human volunteers, in particular breastfeeding mothers, and some of them would sometimes say things like, I can't produce enough milk for my baby. The observation that they weren't producing enough milk for their baby was usually sound, but the conclusion that therefore they couldn't, that the blame lay with them, was usually wrong. Their observations, the reasons why they thought their supply was inadequate, were important and insightful, but their conclusion didn't necessarily follow. My supervisor was right, of course, and the lesson has stayed with me. Listen carefully to conclusions, consider their observations separately. And with respect to that Hebrew archaeologist on the telly, his observation was a very good observation, in the 8th century BC, idolatry in Jerusalem was rife. It was everywhere. But of course, his conclusion didn't necessarily follow. The superabundance of idols doesn't mean that Yahweh wasn't known, that he wasn't worshipped. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And worshippers of Yahweh typically don't leave idols behind. Figurines or statues of their God. Why not? Well, you already know why not. The second commandment, of course, reads like this. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them, nor worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents, to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, as we continue to read through the early chapters of the book of Isaiah, we encounter a world that that archaeologist has prepared us for, a world full of idols, statues and figurines and images, images meaning a three-dimensional model of a god or a goddess. Image doesn't mean a two-dimensional picture, it means a three-dimensional object. And our text today, the passage that we've just listened to, 
Isaiah 2, 6 to 22, is, is one small portion of a longer oracle, a message from Isaiah that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's one complete oracle, and the oracle starts at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And the oracle finishes at the end of chapter 5, 84 verses later. It's sometimes hard to know uh, where an oracle finishes, but in this case, it's made obvious by the fact that chapter 6 introduces something entirely new. An oracle, a message from God through his spokesperson, Isaiah. It has its themes and it has its elements And actually, we examined in detail last week Isaiah's themes. And these are are they. Firstly, behold, people caught in sin. Isaiah's oracles contain passages that describe the sinfulness of the people to whom this message is coming, to whom it's aimed in the first instance, and why that behavior is sinful. Behold, destruction is coming. God inflicted suffering. Isaiah's messages detail what God is going to do in response to human sinfulness, which is to send an appropriate, indeed often ironic, punishment. Repent! God sends his messengers ahead of time with forewarning because he desires not to have to have punish. He doesn't want to. He'd rather rather that people would turn away from their misbehavior and live. Nevertheless, the punishment itself, when found to be unavoidable, will be like refiner's fire. It will purge and purify, destroying the wicked. But perhaps paradoxically, increasing the faith of those who come through the suffering, trusting God to save them. Because he will. And that refined element will be for God a faithful remnant. In the Bible, God is saving for himself a faithful remnant, a a tiny proportion of humanity who will be yet and nevertheless a vast multitude of every language and tribe and people and skin. And this faithful remnant will fulfill the purposes for which God has created them. They will fulfill by God's grace their creation mandate. To use one particular biblical phrase, they will be a blessing to the nations. And if you read through chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5, you'll find each section, you'll find those topics addressed um, within the larger whole. Each, Each passage fits one of those categories. But now, in terms of unpacking this message, Isaiah, in our text today, he expands upon two elements out of that list. He expands upon the sin of idolatry, And he introduces us to the idea of the day of the Lord. So let's attend to those two lessons. Firstly, idolatry. You might be asking, 
what is an idol? And that's a good question because in one sense, Western cultures are devoid of idols. Um, But you can see idols if you travel overseas or engage with non-Western cultures or you watch, for example, a film like The Gladiator. And of course, if you go into Asian hotels and restaurants, you might see images and statues there. In essence, idols. Uh, Yes, an idol in the first instance is a statue, large or small, of a god or goddess. Some might be tens of meters high and reside in temples. Others might be half a meter or a meter and reside at the center of a household shrine. Others might be only centimeters high and fit in your pocket. Some might be wood or stone carvings or ceramic. Others might be gold or silver adorned with gems and engravings, fine metalwork. What was, what was the appeal of such things? It's difficult for us, I think, perhaps sometimes as Westerners, to imagine someone walking along all day with a thing in their pocket, and then when they get to their room at the end of the day, pulling that thing out, placing it in front of them, bowing down to it, worshipping it, praying to it, something that's been in their pocket all day. Well, in terms of understanding the appeal of idolatry, perhaps a number of things can be said. First and foremost... The ancient world did not know, nor could it comprehend, the idea of worship of gods and goddesses without images or statues. To the ancient mind, an idol was the obvious means of communication with the spiritual world because it represented that deity in a meaningful, functional way. It was, to use a modern analogy, a spiritual mobile phone. Speaking to the image was speaking to the deity. Second, and not inconsequentially, like magpies, most of us fall for shiny things. We like stuff. They liked stuff. I can remember vividly traveling through places like Italy and Spain as a child with my parents and encountering markets full of shiny souvenirs and small, precious things, many of them having overt religious connotations, medals, for example, of different Roman Catholic saints. A St. Christopher medal, for example, might be an appealing thing to own because it is small and shiny and detailed and precious-looking. And we like to own precious things and stick them in our pockets and call them our treasures. And I can remember pestering my parents for such trinkets without any comprehension whatsoever as to their meaning, either their temporal cultural meaning or indeed their eternal spiritual meaning. I just simply like shiny things. And if the Joneses next door had a very impressive gold statue in their living room, work of fine art and pleasing to the eye, how natural to be envious of them and to want the same or better. Third, idols offered the illusion of control. When we feel frightened or in danger, it is appealing to have something to hand, something in hand, 
that we think might even the odds. Just uh, look at what those, those poor bomber pilots uh, took with them in their aircraft in, in World War II. They took with them lucky rabbit's feet, lucky rub rubber bands, four-leafed clover, St. Christopher medals, all kinds of things. When you live in constant fear of your life, which is certainly how many people in the ancient world lived, it is enormously appealing to have something in your hand that enables you in your mind to have the situation in hand. And human beings love so much to be in control that indeed we use it as one of the most common marketing strategies. Your deodorant, for example, might put you in control. Fourth, it's nice to be an individual, but it's hard to be different. And if everyone has their idols in their pockets, in their living rooms, on the street corners, at the corner shop counter, at the center of the marketplace and in the town square, if everyone has their idols, it's very difficult not to follow suit. Um, we're all individuals. They said all together. Um, in our text today, idols as statue thingies are mentioned explicitly and at intervals through the passage. Uh, verse 8, verse 18, verse 20, they were worshipping statues. But in connection with idolatry, Isaiah actually also talks about a whole host of other things too. And in doing so, Isaiah helps us to realize that idolatry is a whole heap more than just worshipping figurines. It is a way of life in which God, the God of the Bible, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is ignored and excluded. So then, Isaiah talks about superstitions from the east, divination like the Philistines' pagan customs. Idolatry, in fact, includes any philosophy or practice wrought in opposition, unwitting or willful opposition to the word of God. Such philosophies and practices suit the ambitions and desires of our hearts, but only by ignoring God and pushing him to the margins. Isaiah talks about delight in high, towering mountains, majestic cedars of Lebanon, the luxuriant oak trees of Bashan. And that feeling, which we've all experienced, that feeling of spiritual connectedness that natural places and natural wonders give us, that idea of being one with Mother Nature and the Earth, that is idolatrous insofar as it is worship of the creation rather than worship of the Creator. Even simply admiring the creation is idolatrous if it is done without giving glory to the one who made it. What we're doing in those instances is we're ignoring God in order to put something or someone else in his place. Isaiah talks about delight in horses and chariots, lofty towers and fortified walls, the, the security of armies, the security of fortifications, the security of political alliances. And whenever people put their faith in something other than God to save them, that's idolatry. Ignoring God, putting something else in his place. 
And that's especially true, really, of money, isn't it? Isaiah talks about the accumulation of silver and gold, of treasures and of trading ships, and of every stately vessel. The love of money, based on a foundation of greed, is a plain form of idolatry, putting money in God's place. Well, Jesus has a lot to say about all of these things, as I'm sure that you know. And Isaiah talks about human achievement, doesn't he? The work of our hands, the things we have made, the things of silver and gold, which we have made in order to worship them, in order to find meaning and purpose. Any endeavor, even those that seem honorable and praiseworthy, any endeavor is idolatrous if it puts humankind in God's place, a delight in ourselves rather than a delight in our maker. And the human delight, the human thirst for glory and honor is the worst of our addictions. So all idolatry is sin and all sin is idolatry. The two ideas are closely relinked and closely related, but they are not identical. Idolatry is... Idolatry is the arrogant rejection of God. It is every philosophy and idea that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. It is every project and dream in which God and his priorities are sidelined and excluded. It is every attempt to recreate humankind in its own image, every attempt at self-identity that isn't built on the foundation of God's identity. And idolatry is when humankind make humankind the measure of all things. Something else that we should notice in verses 6 to 22 is that although Isaiah starts by preaching against the Jews of Jerusalem, God has found them idolatrous, he carries on in such a way as actually to indict the entire human race. For the Lord God Almighty has a day in store for all the proud, all the lofty, all those who exalt themselves. And so we started by acknowledging that that ancient culture of 8th century BC was highly idolatrous, worshipping statues big and small. But now we've come to a place of recognizing that all human cultures are idolatrous. And that Western cultures, although in fact we're perhaps devoid of statue worship, Western cultures are nonetheless as idolatrous as any other. So what is the antidote to a society that ignores God and breaks his rules? How does God respond to a party that he's not invited to? A party in his house that he is not invited to, a party in his house that is trashing his house to which he has been excluded. How does God respond to that? Well, he shows up anyhow. And so at this point we begin to consider the idea of the day of the Lord, the day God shows up, the day of God's manifest presence. Chapter 2, verse 2 begins with, in the last days. 
So then, Isaiah is offering us something that theologians call an eschatological vision. Eschatology means words about last things or discussion about the last days. Chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5, Isaiah keeps on coming back to that idea of last days. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 12, the Lord Almighty has a day in store. 3.18, in that day, the Lord will. Chapter 4, verse 1, in that day. Chapter 4, verse 2, in that day. Chapter 5, verse 30, in that day. The day of the Lord, an exceedingly common phrase or a suite of similar phrases in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah did not invent the phrase. It is common in Old Testament prophetic literature. And it is a phrase that Isaiah's countrymen would have already known and been very well accustomed to. In their hands, they loved the phrase, the day of the Lord. They lived for the day of the Lord. It referred to a time, a long-awaited and much-desired time, a time when God would restore all things, righting all wrongs, establishing justice, and above all, punishing the Gentiles for invading the promised land. That's what it was really all about. Punishing Gentiles. What Isaiah does with the phrase is to establish that that day actually will be terrible for all, for everyone. A a day of testing, a day of suffering, a day of struggling, including for God's people. A day when God shows up and who can stand. A day of refining fire. With respect to idolatry, on the day of the Lord, the day when God shows up in person, people will see themselves in a totally different light. Just like Isaiah himself will, in chapter 6, see himself in a totally different light on the day that God showed up at his workplace, at the temple in Jerusalem of all places. Who would have expected God to show up there? But suddenly Isaiah sees himself in a totally new light. In the presence of the Holy One, we see very clearly that we are not holy, and that is terrifying. Chapter 2, verse 19. People will flee to caves in the rocks and holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. And in the manifest presence of God, human beings will not only see themselves totally differently, they'll see their idols in a new light. All those things in which they delighted, all those things in which they found meaning and purpose, all those things to which they devoted their lives, they'll now see in a totally different light. What they've spent their lives trying to attain, they'll want to separate themselves from as though their very lives depended upon it because it does. Verse 20, in that day, people will throw away to the moles and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold, that uh, which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to overhanging crags from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. But as uh, we have seen before, and as the text reminds us, when God rises to judge, he also rises to save. And the faithful remnant will come through that refining fire 
in such a way as to be recreated, to have stronger faith and trust and love and joy, fulfilling their creation mandate. So actually, Isaiah begins this oracle with this good news. The the faithful remnant will fulfill their creation mandate. Chapter 2, verse 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So so refining fire is coming, but it will refine a faithful remnant so that they will fulfill their creation mandate to be conformed to the image and likeness of their creator and point others to him too. The day of the Lord will cleanse humanity of idolatry. It is the cure. That piece of really good news begs the question, when will the day of the Lord happen? Well, Isaiah understood in a real yet partial way that the day of the Lord would be when the Assyrians invaded the land of Judah and left it as a smoldering wreck. Isaiah understood that in a real yet partial way, the day of the Lord would be that day when the Babylonians came to Jerusalem and took everyone back to Babylon as slaves in captivity. He also understood that in a real yet partial way, the day of the Lord would be when the exile came and the Jews returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of God. But he also saw, and he kept on preaching, seeing these things but from a distance. He kept saying that the day of the Lord would involve the coming of God's perfect Messiah, the suffering of God's faithful servant, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, leading to the unification of heaven and earth. That's Isaiah's message in a nutshell. As you may have noticed, that happens to be the message of the New Testament in a nutshell too. Um, But as Christians, we can understand, therefore, along with Isaiah, that this is all about Jesus. Jesus on earth is God's manifest presence. The identity of God, and therefore the identity of humanity, on perfect display. And uh, with him in our midst, uh, that would, of course, because he's caught us in idolatry, that would, of course, be absolutely intolerable. That's why we murdered him. I mean, it was the only solution. Uh, The murder of Jesus was, of course, also from God's perspective, the only solution. Only God 
could bear the wrath of God on sinful humanity. His pain and anger at our destruction of ourselves and his creation. He bore it. He bore bore our rejection of him on himself at the cross through the Son. The, The day of the Lord then has in one sense already happened. In another sense, we wait for the final perfection of all things, a time when the perfect revelation of Jesus will be to all people in all of his heavenly and eternal glory. But as Christ's people, we have already passed through the day of the Lord in order that we might be cleansed of all idolatry, and we have been at baptism. And now... The New Testament just implores us again and again to flee from it. Don't fall back into old patterns, old ways of thinking. And having been cleansed of idolatry, we are now ready to fulfill our creation mandate to point others to the word of God as the thing which makes human beings human beings. So as we wait the final perfection of all things, when the entire creation will be once and for all cleansed of all idolatry, we wait for Jesus. And him who, uh, and, and, and in that, we purify ourselves. Hopefully then, I've said enough already today on idolatry uh, in, for us to be able to recognize intellectually the nature of the phenomenon. We all the full bottle on what idolatry is. Um, But if idolatry is indeed the worst of human addictions, we're going to need something a little bit more than just head knowledge. And so now hopefully also the cure will be clear. And it is the worship of Jesus. The worship of Jesus is the only safe addiction, the only cure for the addiction of idolatry. The worship of Jesus as Jesus our identity. Jesus as what it means to be a human being. Jesus as our Lord. Jesus as the one who we obey. Jesus as our saviour. Jesus as the one we put our trust in always to save us from little things and big. Jesus our wisdom. The one who helps us to know what to do and why to do it. Jesus, our treasure, the most precious thing in our lives. And Jesus, our desire, that thirst and hunger now satisfied leaves us only with an even greater thirst and hunger. Jesus, our desire. Now to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen.